Hello, dear friends, and welcome to Alley Audio Vision, a series of talks with architect Ralph Alley. I am Clark Yarrington of Frame Residential Design in Anchorage, Alaska. Ralph spent 30 years designing in Alaska. In this episode, our topics include Ralph's design influences, how he got established in Anchorage, his version of networking included singing in church and in a barbershop quartet and composing a musical performed by Anchorage High School students. We also discuss pros and cons of so-called neutral interiors and end the episode with a description of a pilgrimage Ralph went on with one of his college professors just before he came to Alaska. Ralph Alley joins me from an undisclosed Southern California location. Ralph, are you there? I am right here, and I'm ready to take off from where we uh, left our last conversation. Sounds good. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling well. Uh, I have people who are scared to death of the virus. They're postponing trips and postponing eating out, and uh, so far I haven't gotten it, but uh, I guess I hope I don't. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess uh, the need to self-quarantine couldn't come at a better time for me. That's what that's what I've been doing for the last four years, anyhow. Well, I, I've never really liked to be a big social bug anyway, so staying inside is not a bad idea. <laughs> yep. So I think the last time we left it back in about 1959, maybe 1960 at the most, and you were talking about a couple of projects that were left to you by your friend Ray Salmi, whose wife wanted to uh, decamp back to California. Yeah, that was Pat. Of course, they did go, and I uh, believe you showed a photograph of the Bailey house, which was one of them, and of course, the Kickbush house. And uh, the Kickbush house, I actually was, uh, well, actually, both the houses, I was involved with the construction. They were not uh, erected, had not been erected, which was a great process uh, to be involved at that time. Right, and both of them... uh hadn't actually designed the houses in the first place, but they looked like you by the time you were done with them. <laughs> well, I was left to articulate it, and and I did describe what I did with the Bailey house, which to me needed to have stability to it because the ground was all different levels, and the roof started with a two-story gabled element, and then it ski-sloped down over to the media, middle area, and then it would take a butterfly trip back up. And I thought, how in the world is this going to look <laughs> in reality? So it needed to have uh, a strong element that would, uh, uh, from all of these different angles about it, would spring from. And that's what uh, did my design. And I also did uh, the, the strike line I explained last time was at the header uh, above the header of both doors and windows of the middle element of that house. And it tracked all the way around and everything related to it. And it brought out some interesting uh, architectural aspects that I originally hadn't thought about doing. And then I took it around on the inside. So when you're in the main level and you go upstairs, that you surpass, you kind of uh, surpass that Uh, strike line inside uh, and uh, you really felt like you were going somewhere. Uh, You knew you were upstairs or you knew you were going to the lower level just because of it. So when you call it a strike line, is it a thin line or is it, you know, more like four or five feet thick? No, it's basically maybe uh, three inches or something like that. Uh, I don't know. I didn't like to use two buys too much. I usually did things in uh, three-by materials, which drove people crazy because <laughs> a lot of the lumber stores didn't like to carry that. But it was uh, dressed lumber, and I uh, guess I got used to carrying it. But inside, I used it. Uh, I did a lot of paneling, and the ceiling in the Bailey house is paneled uh, with cedar and then would come to the walls, and it would turn down uh, regardless of the level of the ceiling, and it was a vaulted ceiling, would turn down to that strike line. I'm not sure I'm explaining it, but uh, when you go into the house, you really feel where you're, where the elevation is or when you're walking around the house. Uh, if you're up, down, or 
going even further down to the lower level, you know, have something to relate to. Yeah, well, I think we're up against the limitations of trying to describe these pieces of architecture just with words on an audio podcast. So um, I want to go over sometime and see if I can get some more photographs of this house. It'd be neat to go on the inside, too. And if I'm able to do that, we could uh, update the previous episode and have some newer photos. But considering the condition of the outside, I'm thinking maybe on the inside they didn't, you know, paint it blue over the years uh, either. Well, you may start seeing where Dave Cole is because he was an architect up in Anchorage and he owned that house um, right. several years ago and he still may be there. I do not know. Yeah, I think I'll talk to his neighbor, um, Buck, about that and see if I can uh, gain any insights, but it'd be nice to uh, know more. looks great on the outside. You know, I'm really happy that it still oh, um, thank you. It is uh, in the, such good shape. And, of course, the kickbushed house, um, I did add things to it. I was into very wide main doors in those days because I felt it was monumental uh, approach into a high space and I so many doors up there were like three feet wide and then you'd enter into spaces that just immediately went up several feet above a, a normal ceiling height and it just didn't feel right to me so uh, what I did is I put the curse of the old split entry house that you indicated last <laughs> yes. time that you never preferred and for good reason <laughs> And the split entry was is a perfect example of it because you'd walk into these spaces through this little slim door and you were elevated uh, to a very large height. It's really kind of a bad massing, I think, of space, if that makes sense. But anyway, I put on the front of the Kickbush house, which uh, wasn't originally intended, this big glassed-in vestibule porch uh, that is... You enter first before you get into the place where it kicks up to bring in south sunlight, and which is the main entrance to the house. And I put in a very wide ornamental wood door, a glass wood and glass door, and then the vestibule itself has a wood screens over the top of it, and it it really just made that house sing, in my opinion. Yeah, it sounds like a good way to um, make a really good first impression. You can see the door already upon approach and then entering this uh, grandish um, space. Sounds like a great move. Yeah. So what else What can you say about that house? What was it like? In, uh, uh, Joan's paintings were quite vibrant with color. So I felt her home should not impose a color onto her and it's uh, very light colored inside as well as out. We used to cabot bleach on all the wood cedar and uh, before anything was applied inside and out we just actually put it out in the sunlight so the sun would bleach it to this beautiful natural light tone and uh, that's one thing I loved about that house. Um, once Joan moved in, who is colorful herself with all her paintings, and it was really a great backdrop for such a nice personality as Joan Kickbush. It's a similar um, approach that a lot of people use today, where they want the uh, interior to be really neutral for the sake of the fabulous artwork collection, but often um, the interiors today are all white, which I don't know if I really like that, you know, but sure see it a lot now. I have seen a lot of that um, even in California but and just went through that with the client who insisted on a white interior but I do like the idea of residential design and I've designed for writers and television writers and, and other people in uh, artistic fields and and I feel that the uh, space where they go should allow them to think and to create and not impose anything on them. And, uh, it, and it also allows you, if you have, uh, have a proclivity, to put up decorations for uh, dinner parties or Christmas or Easter or whatever comes along, that it really takes very little to make an impact on the inside area. I just really like lighter tones for uh, 
residential design. Well, that house probably wasn't a, a large house either. It seems like when no. you mentioned it before, it w called it a, um, a a basement. Part of the project was going to be just putting an upper level on it. So was it like, I don't know, a couple thousand square feet altogether, maybe more like 3,000 or so? I'm trying to remember, but it was not large. It, uh, main floor had a living room, dining room, divided by a fireplace, a see-through fireplace, and uh, a master bedroom and bath. And I'm just trying to remember if there are other bedrooms. The basement there already had bedrooms and bathrooms there. So I think it's pretty much is what that house is, except it does have a large garage. Seems like I've been working on a lot of houses in recent years that are around 3,000 square feet of living area or so, and that seems like a pretty good size. And it's certainly not small, but it isn't eight or 10,000 square feet. It, I mean, it doesn't seem uh, excessive. It seems like about a comfortable amount to have, you know, maybe three bedrooms, two and a half baths, something like that, and a reasonable uh, array of other space in it. Is that about the size of the Kickbush house? Actually, that is a size that a lot of people requested uh, up there in Alaska. It's 3,000 square feet. Right. And uh, it's surprising you can do quite a bit with that. I have um, <clears throat> lived in homes larger than that, but the one thing I like about the size of home, a uh, smaller home, which I now have, is that you don't need people to help you take care of it. When I was a kid, we lived in some places that you had to have uh, people come and do certain chores around the house. And I really resented it then, and I still do. <laughs> I like my own space without other people there. Well, and, you know, the family dynamic can be kind of an interesting thing because people think they need a lot of different spaces for if there are children there. And, you know, they need, uh, like, the kids have to have their own area and have enough privacy from the adults and stuff like that. I'm not actually sure that's always a good idea. You know, sometimes if um, everybody's together in sort of uh, close quarters there, it just make the people act a little bit differently. Maybe they're more respectful of, uh, you know, not wanting to feel like everybody's on top of each other. I, I, it's the same type of discussion that we were started to have about the open office, I suppose. Architecture just has so many ways to to put space around people. And I, I think the best thing is to, in custom design, is to really look at the situation that uh, you're going to house within that design. I remember... Studying way back, there was a, an architect uh, that I came on to once in uh, Tiburon, California, and I looked at what he was doing, and his big thing, the most important key to architecture, he always felt is it's got to respond to the climate and the geography where you have it, use the materials that are available, and, and to address the lifestyle that's going to be living within it. And uh, that's always been a creed, creed uh, with me as far as uh, starting design for people who hire you to do individual designs for them. Yep. And uh, that seems like uh, once you get known for being able to do that, you'd probably have as much work as you wanted to do because there's <laughs> there's plenty of, of uh, people who could like... Um, design something for you without that much thought put into it but yeah and I don't know why that should be such a novelty or, or possibly controversial it just seems like uh, you know if that's not what you're trying to do then uh, uh, why are you even doing anything at all or even involved with the field I mean it certainly doesn't make piles of money for people right I could tell you that it's been a number of homes that my clients tell people that they designed it themselves and I'm kind of like a doodad <laughs> there <laughs> and that's yeah. actually the way they should feel it, 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 I mean that is really the greatest compliment that I become in the background and and uh, let them stand out in that's their fascinating space. you know I don't know too many people that would that would say something like that or take that attitude about it but it's uh it seems very mature you know 
a lot of times it reads more like a, a giant clash of egos and a big struggle the whole way. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I do know what you're driving at. And I was on a jury for some architecture, uh, young architects uh, in San Diego, Del Mar, actually. And, oh, my land. <clears throat> we looked at all this architecture, and all of them were copies of uh, Richard Meyer or I can't even go through them, all white, all very rakish, all a lot of glass, a lot. And it went on and on and on. And we had to jury this. And we did tour the different uh, uh, buildings. And when it came down to the jurors talking, I was almost a stranger in paradise. These people loved all of that. And I thought it was the most boring-looking uh, collection of buildings I'd ever seen because they were all clones of each other in just a different way uh, using the idioms of each. Yeah, there's still a lot of that going on, um, no, no matter what um, uh, endeavor you're in, you know, if it if it's big public buildings or uh, residential. I was looking at this magazine of, a few years ago that our mutual friend uh, Charles Blomfield had when I went over to talk to him, and it was uh, something like 12 magazines, uh, top 100 residential projects of the last 10 years from, from 2000 to 2010. He handed me that issue, and I looked through it, and... It's like there were several copies of exactly the same thing. You know, it was like the white, yes. the white living room with uh, that was about uh, 14 feet wide, 14 feet tall, and 32 feet long, and all glass at one end, and and all the walls were white, and there were four pieces of furniture like a couch, a lounge chair, a bookcase, and and a lamp with a really long, um, with a with a lamp hanging on a really long uh, like an arm, you know. <laughs> Even the interiors, I, I, I notice a lot of the architecture that is shown in, in uh, high-end magazines. They use 1950s uh, furnishings, which, uh, I mean, that was 1950. <laughs> and here they think they're using the latest stuff uh, as far as furnishing. I'm a little guilty of that, too. I might have a couple of those uh, Eames chairs around here because I think it's still, it's like, you know, it's a, it's an old design like that, but nobody has managed to do anything better <laughs> or more comfortable. I was involved with a dress uh, designer uh, for, I was architect of record for a high-rise on Wilshire for a couple, three years and put a lot of different people into that building and one of them was going to be Maxine Waters <laughs> but she backed out because we couldn't get the office there fast enough or get it built inside this it was a building built in the 30s 17 stories high and we were refurbishing it but uh, one of the um, interesting things was a dress designer wanted everything to be 1950s and I couldn't find enough 1950s stuff to be pure enough for her she was she was not going to settle for anything that wasn't authentic and it was just amazing that people get themselves into those fixes well i was going to guess before you said that that the authenticity of it was the important part there you know that there's plenty of like um ways that uh design from that era Copies, is, yeah. is reinterpreted and to put it more diplomatically i guess but the real thing like i i don't know well i'm almost old enough and you're definitely old enough to be able to discern the the genuine uh, article from the from the fake 50s uh items i was uh just thinking back a little bit on this white architecture and richard meyer and uh, I, however the getty museum that he did is not exactly white which was nice <laughs> change but uh the uh, husband and wife team on the, in the San Diego Del Mar uh, juried show that uh, I was one of the jurors, they insist on white. And I noticed a number of years ago they were in a war with the planning commission down there. They were insisting on a building be white and, and the planning commission wanted it beige. And they were actually, I don't know how it turned out, it, it really irritated me that, that they were holding out a project, a commission, unless they could have their way. And it seemed like there is a point that that's part of the architecture you're designing for is 
is the community. It's how a building works in the community. And the community's idea was the white didn't fit in. So it was kind of an interesting uh, battle going on in the news media. Yeah, I don't have much um, real knowledge about why people want things white like that. Is it because they're purists of a sort? Because I suppose you could say if you were a purist about it, really, that uh, you wouldn't have any paint at all. All of these materials yes. would just be in their raw form and express, you know, you'd have like unfinished wood and uh, raw concrete. Uh, it's kind of more like me, in a way. I like that myself. <laughs> well, let's insert a pause at this point. We'll come back uh, in a minute and maybe go see if we can get back to the early 60s. <laughs> okay. Audio Vision, Clark Yarrington speaking, proprietor, instigator, interloper. Let's fly back into our talk with Ralph as he's about to be asked to step into his boss's office. Okay, Ralph, we were talking before that little break about um, various uh, philosophical constructs, and um, I think we should get back to your own career in the early 60s. So after the Kickbush House, and um, is it the Bailey House, the one on uh, Stanford Drive? It is. After those were executed, um, what were you, what did that lead you to? More projects like it, I suspect. Well, there, when I was at Manly Mayor, and I wasn't there for a couple of months, and uh, Bill Manley had come next to my drafting, and he kind of interrupted what I was doing. He made my straight lines look crooked because he almost scared me. Why? <laughs> but he, I looked over at him, and he had his glasses in his hand. He was pointing out the window to D Street, and uh, Manny Mayer's office is in the Lusak Somme building. It still may be there. I don't know. It's a concrete two-story building on the corner of uh, 5th and D. I think that building's mostly used for residential these days. Is it? Yeah. Well, he was pointing out this window to this man, uh, looked like he's 60 or something, and um, he says, you see that guy? He says, uh, he can buy and sell us. And we watched, and then he went into this little red shack between two concrete block buildings across the street. <laughs> and he says, that's Bob Reeves. He owns... a." Alaska Aleutian Airways, and he he says, that's our corporate headquarters. <laughs> I looked at that <laughs> little building, I thought, that is pretty darn unique. <laughs> we were talking about him in the first episode and his house over there oh, on yeah. the so-called Pilot's Row. Do, do you remember the names of them, uh, of the children, or, or that were in the concrete that you saw, or? No, and I was thinking about that after I mentioned it, that maybe I should go over there and look again and see if it's still there, you know, like 15 years after I saw it the last time. Well, he and Tilly had five kids, you know, and I knew uh, two, only two, but I can't remember which ones they were. Well, I remember the name Tilly was written in the concrete, but that was his wife, not one of That's his, the, the wife. Kids, right? I, I yeah. think the girls' names were Roberta and Janice or something like that, and the boys were Robert and uh, youngest one had a strange name started with a W. I can't remember Whittem or Whitham, something like that. Okay, but, but anyway, what, so what was the point of um, him uh, pointing him out to you? Oh, he wanted me as soon as he finished this and we watched. He gave me the sign to follow him into his office. And I thought, gosh, this is it. I'm really going to be fired. And I had the hammer is going to fall. Oh no! <laughs> I was away. doing the house, the six-sided house at that time. 
<laughs> drawing it because I was there just for, uh, you know, I got that commission right off the bat and it was like April, I think. And anyway, we sat down and uh, he started talking and he said, this prominent businessman here in Anchorage uh, has come to me and I thought, oh, crap, <laughs> This is terrible. And he says, but he wants to have this refrigerated addition to his warehouse down at the Port of Anchorage. And he wants to have an addition to his home out at Airport Heights. And at that moment, I slid to the very back of the chair and relaxed. And it ended up that uh, this was Ken and Gloria Britt, who had Alaska Fish and Farm. He said that he had his own builder and uh, his name was Tony Luth, and he'll be calling you to meet him. And so anyway, I got busy, uh, went out to both sites, but the first one I visited was Gloria Britt. And I didn't know her. I uh, didn't know what she'd be like, but she's very, very nice. But she told me that she wanted, and she ran around in that, Atwood circle that seemed to have a hold on the social uh, dinners around Anchorage. And uh, so she explained that she would like to expand this living room she had in this Airport Heights house to the property line or as far as she could go so she could throw large dinner parties there. But she said, first, you can never say that to anybody. This has got to be a music room or my husband, Ken, isn't going to approve. <laughs> and she says, if we expand it, it's going to look horrible. And you've got to figure out a way to design this so that it can be closed off and opened up where it looks nice at all times. And I went back and I took the measurements, of course, and I guess Bill made the contract with her. And I actually started designing the space with the shoji's that would close off that space and she made it clear she wanted no tracks in the floor for closing anything off so I had to come up with this telescoping stays in the bottom of each screen and uh, so that you could pull these out and they'd still have support without a track I mean, you could support it from the ceiling, but there could be no track on the floor. That's it. And uh, so I designed something. It had three telescoping uh, steel stays in the bottom, and I can't remember the detail to it at this point, but it anyway. So it would function almost like flush bolts or something like that, where they would be deployed just to tension. Well, they're like the steel channels, the... lightweight steel channels is what they were. And there was a lot to it, but... I was called on the phone by Tony Luth, who was their contractor, and um, he said, you got to come out and meet with me on your scribbles, and I, so I, I drove out, huh? Scribbles. <laughs> yes, that's what he called it, and so I drove out there, and uh, of course, I had only been there like a month or so, uh, pulled up in the office car across the street, there was this pickup over on the other side, and as soon as I pulled up, this guy just climbs out a big bull neck and glasses and his furrowed brow and big shoulders, <laughs> jumped out of his pickup and started right at me. And I opened the door and he says, uh, before we go in there, he says, I'm going to talk to you about these drawings, them drawings, he says. I said, what makes you so sure I'm the person you're supposed to be talking to? And he says, because you just fresh off the goddamn boat. And he just exploded with laughter in the middle of the street. Was, <laughs> that was, was fun. He was ready to tell you, like, how we do things around here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he says, come over to my office. And he unhooked the tailgate to his pickup and put And here he folded, rolled everything out on the there. And he says, why are you putting these things in these deep pockets? You are costing Ken Britt a lot of money. And I said, because they got to go in the pockets because they, that space has to be totally open. We just can't hang shoji's in the middle of that space because it, it won't serve the purpose that it's supposed to be used for. And he said, well, how does this work? So I explained to him how there's a fixed channel and then there's these smaller channels that slide inside. And then when you pull it out with the fixed channel, 
that is against the existing walls is going to hold the channels as you pull them out and will keep the doors stable. And he looked at me and says, how does a young guy like you get ideas like that? <laughs> I looked him right in the eye and says, I'm just lucky. <laughs> That's it. And he, he started laughing and he grabbed me by my shoulders and he says, let's go and see what we can do with this. And he pushed me into the door. And so we worked on that. And then he says, let's go down and look at the uh, warehouse down at the port. And I said, fine. So I followed him down there. And we spent most of the day going through that. And when I was ready to drive back in the office car, I had the window down. It's, of course, cold. And, and uh, he came and started for the window as I put the uh, rolled the window down he put his elbows on each side and folded his arms inside the door and then he ducked his head in and I thought what in the world is it going to do now and he says would you come and have dinner some Friday with Jean and my wife and me and my boy Billy <laughs> I said sure and it was another Friday dinner without drunks I was glad to oblige and I did go for dinner. He did invite me. And Gene and Billy and Tony Luth were a big part of my life up there. They remained friends all those years. That story has a really happy ending, you know. Like I, I thought for a while there that the guy was just going to turn out to be a complete jerk. And the cynical me is thinking, yeah, if there's if the client <laughs> has any money left over, it should go in my pocket. Yeah. Well, I've met some of those. Yeah. I really, Anchorage is filled with that, but not Tony. He was wonderful. Anyway, the addition was built, and of course, here I had the Kickbush and the Six Sided House and the Baileys going, kind of, you know, at time when it was all constructed. The Brits were in that social circle. I knew very little about it, but I first heard of Evangeline Atwood from Gloria Britt. One of the meetings I had with her, she was waiting for mail, and the mail finally came. I didn't, I could have been invisible as far as she was anxiously waiting for the mail. And it came, and she put her hand out the door and came back with a handful of mail and sat down, and she got the invitation to the Atwood daughter's wedding, which was happening at that time. And she was so thrilled to get the invitation that I could have been invisible from there on. She called her husband, Ken, and he didn't stay on the phone but two seconds after she told him the news. And finally, she was so distracted, I finally said, are we done here? And she says, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how important it was, that little social uh, group. But that's how I started getting known there. There's so many things. And then, uh, if if you're talking about what happens next, but there was an associate in the office, not the guy who hired me, but Charlie Kendall. And he asked me to come to his uh, workstation, and very quietly he said when I got up there, and I thought, sure, he was going to fire me. He says, can you come to my girlfriend's apartment and have Friday night <laughs> dinner? <laughs> And I said, sure. And so I went up uh, to the L Street apartment. She's on the 13th floor and had dinner with them. They learned of my career in entertainment and music and things that I had done in summers where I virtually was an amateur entertainer for large crowds. And she, she said, well, do something on the piano here. So I did. And I started really just cutting cutting into getting into it and the knock came on the door the people asked us to be quiet and, but when they left she says would you help me put together a musical review for my high school students at West High and I said sure so I did that uh, at the same time I was doing all this moonlighting and office work I wrote her a musical review called Metronome, and it was given in late fall, not right at, I would say, close to winter, and it was a huge success. She asked me to perform a number, uh, a musical number with uh, her students, and I I remember doing uh, Everything's Up to Date to Kansas City <laughs> with them, and that led for someone 
to have me in a barbershop quartet, which I went on and got me out with people on the Richardson military base there. And so I started getting really spread around Anchorage, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was kind of interesting. I had so many things going. And, and the person who uh, I met who helped me uh work backstage in these musical um, in this musical uh, review that I did was at West High School and was Paul Boniface and his family. Uh, Lucky Boniface, who later was killed in uh, Vietnam, was um, in high school then and uh, his daughter was a ballet dancer and later I started doing some uh, direct or stage uh, designs for the ballet there too. So I really got spread around in a lot of different areas, and everybody wanted a house. (laughs) So that's kind of how it started. Nice. You know, so the same client uh, has a cold storage plant addition and a house, and the commercial project is probably like, you know, 10 times as more um, construction value as the house. But which one was more interesting? I'm guessing it was the house, huh? Probably. the uh, Bailey's Rental was a, a big deal in those days off Fireweed Lane. And uh, Fred and Janet Bailey were really nice people, too. And uh, 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 I believe uh, Fred and Janet and Ray Salmi's wife were all Christian scientists. And actually, I later became the substitute soloist for the Christian scientist. Was there the... Sunday after the earthquake when the place was going crazy in there. All the chandeliers were rocking. But there were quite a number. An aftershock, you mean? Yes, an aftershocks. And the Christian science, the the reader up there was talking about this a seeming earthquake. And I thought, my gosh, this this seems pretty real to me. Uh, One question I always got asked when I got quite a bit of architecture up, I always was asked, oh, you're copying Frank Lloyd Wright. And and one of the comments I always had that I got from having several buildings was that I was kind of copying someone and wanting to know where I got my ideas. And You couldn't uh, possibly have thought of this stuff all, all on your own, huh? It must have. No, some, uh... I was such a an inexperienced little guy, I guess. Yeah. Of course, in those days, I was 5'11", so I wasn't exactly small, but um, that was always something. And Frank Lloyd Wright was thrown at me all the time. Well, Frank Lloyd Wright, I, and we've talked about this, you and I, but I saw his early work in uh, uh, Oak Park in uh, Chicago. and uh, But he, I first knew of him uh, when I was taking algebra, and the instructor who taught it was uh, Ted Corral, and he brought a Fortune magazine when the Johnson Wax Building was going up in Racine, Wisconsin, and he showed it to the class, and I went up and borrowed it, the books or the periodicals, so I could read it. And uh, so he kind of introduced me to write, and I was fascinated by what he was doing. But virtually there were people who were stronger influences on me, and I I think that arts and craft movement, uh, which... uh, Green and Green did, Charles and Henry Green, was was really strong with me. And they exposed structure. They were both born in the early 1860s and always seemed so far away. But then again, all those people were kind of born around there. But Green and Green and Frank Lloyd Wright and Julia Morgan and, and uh, uh, May, Bernard Maybeck, which is a big influence of mine, all attended the 1893 um, Chicago... Columbian Exposition, and uh, it's so. It, did you see a movie last fall that came out called The Current War? Nope. Well, if you get a chance, it's really a, quite a movie. Uh, it's the war between Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse, and uh, even Nikolai Tesla gets involved with it between whether to use alternating current or direct current, and it's just an amazing movie to me. <laughs> The one I watched recently that was similar to that was a biopic about Hedy Lamarr, and she was credited with inventing um, the type of technology that is the reason we can talk to each other like this right now, and, and Wi-Fi and stuff all works in the same way. 
it's like some alternating signal um, thing that uh, she could have made a pile of money on had she been a little bit more proactive in patenting it. Hetty Lamar, I remember her in motion pictures, and yeah. she was a gorgeous, gorgeous lady. She was also a scientist. Yes, <laughs> as she was. So she had a lot of abilities. Well, let's insert another break here, and we'll come back in uh, in a minute or so and uh, talk some more. Here in the little theater, uh, a man appeared to sing a song called Splish Splash. A great deal has happened since that time. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Bobby Darren. third segment, Ralph reveals his influencers and how he discovered them. Let's get back to it here on Alley Audio Vision. So we were talking about um, it, your influences, and they seem yeah. to fall in two different categories. People who accused you of being influenced <laughs> by people and, uh, and your actual influences. Well, Green and Grain... The two brothers are two years apart. They come from St. Louis. I, I'm just trying to remember kind of where they are in the spectrum of years. Uh, they're a little bit younger than Maybeck, but uh, who, who is a strong uh, influence on me. But They were working around the turn of the century, I think, right? Or maybe a little after that? Uh, no, before, I think. Uh, 1880 they, era more? Uh, yes, maybe then they both were given to manual training in junior high and high school and and to metalworking and they loved it and uh, when it came time to go to school and I never quite understood their um, the college degree they had but it was like a two-year course at MIT their dad was a physician of some sort and moved to Pasadena and he asked them if they'd like to come out there, and they did. And on their way out, they stopped at this uh, Chicago exposition. And there was the first electrification. And this is what makes the movie so great, because uh, George Westinghouse wins out. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, and the, there are light bulbs everywhere. This motion picture is kind of crazy, all, all over the buildings and the Ferris wheel, everything. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful sight. And it used an uh, alternating current. And, of course, uh, if, you ever, if you go to Europe, you, they adapt a DC current, or direct current, and you always have to use converters if you take uh, electric razors or something over there but the it's just the this idea of the electrification of architecture and the other part to the uh, exposition was it's it was on 600 acres it had a lot of waterways and lagoons and in the middle of that was an island that had authentic japanese architecture on it and that that exhibit actually influenced Wright, it influenced Green and Green, it influenced Bernard Maybeck and Julia Morgan. All of, and Julia Morgan's the gal, the female architect who designed Hearst Castle. And it's just interesting that the Japanese 
architecture would have such an influence on them. But the thing that it did that really was passed on to me in a way, uh, to my liking, was uh, an exposed structure. And before that, structure was always seemed to be hidden in most buildings. And I loved exposed structure, and I felt it was just the right thing for uh, Alaska. But the Green and Green Brothers, who started really are attributed to the American Arts and Craft, their loving their love of manual training, woodworking, and metalworking, they would do all of this jo- fancy, intricate joinery that was so beautiful where uh, certain elements would come together, exposed elements, which I think are, was much more pleasing to the eye than what I saw in uh, Anchorage were Tico connectors everywhere, <laughs> exposed Tico connectors. <laughs> I, that I did not like. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm just listening, you know. I'm trying to oh, think of like yeah. things that I could something uh, to say. Yeah, comment on and stuff. But well, if I'm talking too much, just because uh, once I get into this, you know how I am. I I love this field so much. <laughs> I'm just uh, like standing at the railroad crossing and watching the train go by and all <laughs> yes. the different cars well, I, and stuff and <laughs> Well, well, I hope this is interesting to uh, oh yeah, are listeners. you kidding? It's fascinating. <laughs> well, well, I watched the uh, I watched the Ken Burns uh, documentary about Frank Lloyd Wright, and I do remember th- them talking in that about his affinity for Japanese artwork and the fabulous collection that he had, and how he was um, kind of riding out the uh, the depression at uh, Spring Green in Wisconsin, the the original Taliesin. And he, he didn't have any work, and he was kind of, um, you know, and as soon as he got some, he got like a big hotel project that he was doing or something. He ha- he had a pretty outlandish fee, but he blew all of it immediately on this um, uh, artwork in Japan. He went over there and just bought a bunch of stuff. And I went to Taliesin West a couple, maybe five, five six years ago. I'd never been there before. And they talked about the uh, the artwork collection and had some photos, but it was all gone again. <laughs> I guess uh, I don't know. Well, now they've stopped the school there. Uh, yeah, I saw that it. too. I guess money management isn't a, a thing for his uh, successors uh, any more than it than he was good at it. Yeah, that's part and parcel. You've got to look at that. I always had a controller on my in my back pocket that helped me a lot with that. But uh, <laughs> the well, it it did come in handy a lot but the thing that uh, when you get into all this influence uh, of architecture I I would have to state that Bernard Maybeck the first time I ever saw his work now he's probably the oldest of all these people right at 1860 or thereabouts all these people actually died about the time I uh, went to Alaska, which is interesting, uh, mm-hmm. 58, 59, somewhere around there. But Bernard Maybeck was introduced to me by the Dean of Architecture, who uh, I worked for for two months after I graduated in architecture. And he had some little projects that he wanted to do, finish up, and I helped him. And when I finished the summer with him, he, he said, uh, I'm dating this uh, lady in Oakland, and he says, uh, would you help me drive there? I said, sure, well, I'll go. I, I didn't have really a, any place to go afterwards. And so he uh, and I went down uh, through the middle of Idaho, and the first night we stayed at a farmhouse he designed in Grangeville, and I had never, ever been around that kind of space and watched it work before and it's so present and now it is is this kitchen combination with living dining spaces and that was the first time I'd ever been out of segmented or away from segmented planning and this room he designed this farmhouse was large it was a huge farm and they had help and uh, both in the house and out in the fields and their sons and daughters worked in the house and the sons worked in the fields and they were these tall strapping farm boys who worked in the sunshine were out there bucking bales and i was there on a saturday night with bridgerton but they we went into this large 
huge space, vaulted ceiling. Uh, opposite sides were glass, and then there were screened-in porches on both sides. The uh, kitchen was what was explained to me by Pritchard. He designed, he called it the Domus Kitchen. It's an Italian concept, but three sides of it were nothing but floor-to-ceiling uh, doors. And behind those doors are tote trays that you can move around, put anywhere you want. And, and two huge islands and all facing out to the living and dining area. And on the back wall were these ovens with glass doors with rotisseries in them. And there was food being rotated in there at the moment. And it was the most dramatic food presentation I, I've ever seen because usually kitchens were off in a corner and your mom or sisters were out there doing that and they'd call you when it was all done. Well, not here. That's why they didn't have open plans in those days, right? Because it was supposed to be some mysterious process that was carried out by people who were uh, not in the other room with the uh, with the men in there, you know. Well, this is the most together family I've I've been around, and um, that sounds really amazing. Like that that had so many uh, enhanced uh, capabilities. You know, it was like a commercial kitchen, right? They were feeding a whole crew. Yes, but it didn't have a range which was interesting. They, all the islands had these trays that would pull out and there'd be appliances that they'd put right on the island that were plugged in. And so whenever they wanted a certain kind of cooking, well, they just put that on the island and cook it and then they'd clean it up and put it away. <laughs> there was a scullery to the side that you used, but it was just kind of interesting. Watch. It's amazing, all that. Wow. Uh, anyway, all these workers and the sons and daughters, they, they, they came in and they had this table that went out on both sides after they opened the glass doors into the screened in porches. There are all these chairs that appeared and all the workmen and the family, everyone sat down together for one great big meal, including Ted Pritchard and myself. It was just a kind of a interesting thing that had a great impact on my life of, of um, space planning and, uh, and of course the uh, mass of their farmhouse. So when you drive up to it, you think you're coming up to a commercial building. Lots of bedrooms. We stayed there, and we had our baths, our private baths, private bedrooms. But the sons and daughters decided these people who work out in the sun and and buck bales. They decided I was going to go into Grangefield, going stomping with them on Saturday night. <laughs> and you know, I, the the most light I'd seen for. Six years was for us <laughs> lights. It was just there was quite a difference between me and them, but we had a great time. They probably looked really uh, seasoned, and uh, you, you looked yes. a little pasty. And uh... <laughs> yes, and if anyone ever gave me trouble, they would come in real quick, and the gals would dance with me. It was a great evening. I love that back. night. <laughs> nice, but that was a great influence on me. So that was only the first stop on this trip? Where did you go after yes. that? Yes. The next night we went right to Boise, and uh, we got there mid-afternoon, and the name of the guy was Art Troutner, and he was one of Ted's students at the University of Idaho. And he probably was there when your dad started architecture. Yeah, I think I remember my dad mentioning that name. Well, we went up to this, uh, there was an element of the house that was flat on the ground, but there was a big 17-sided element that hung over the side of the hill with inverted trusses supporting it. Ted showed me all of that. Then when we got into the house, Art Troutner says, I got to show you guys something. And, and so he, we got in this little red sports car, the three of us, and he drove us out to the Boise airport to this hangar, and the wind was ferocious, and it, doors were banging and everything. We went into this place, and inside this hangar, over in the middle, were these little machines that Art Trauner had designed. And he says, this is what these do. And uh, there was some wood strips, and there were some steel flanges with pegs, and he put this stuff into a machine, and now came a little truss joist. And this guy was the inventor of this mammoth industry called truss joist. And our Troutner... Were those the ones that had a wood top and bottom cord and the metal straps on the... The web was... Uh, yes, that, those are the ones. And they consumed the field. 
the construction field. Anyway, he made a little one for me as a gift. Brilliant and idea. I, they, and did, didn't he make millions off of that? He did. Uh, he he grew extremely wealthy from it. And he had a partner who um, named Thomas, I think. I didn't meet him. I wasn't there that night. But we stayed there. He had a beautiful French wife who was very charming. And uh, they put together this meal. That was our second night. And it was just a great trip. But when we got to Oakland, Ted, of course, immediately left me alone at a hotel and I started walking around and I uh, in those days they called African Americans Negroes and there was this Negro church next uh, down the street from the hotel we stayed and the music coming and rhythm coming out of that place was so amazing to me I just sat down on the front porch there and listened to it. It was it was a, a revelation. I'd never heard anything like that in my life. And I love music and actually studied piano from an early age. What happened is that he took me to the Berkeley campus and introduced me to the dean there called William Worcester, who I soon learned that he, uh, when uh, Maybeck taught there, uh, he met, was mentored by Maybeck. But he was kind of an interesting fellow, but what really interested me about the Berkeley campus were those shingled blocks of shingled homes. They were huge that Maybeck had designed. And I'd never seen a, a composition of buildings like that. I I just love that look. And I guess Maybeck and the kind of gathered together the American arts and craft along uh, with the green and green and they started what they called the Bay Area Tradition. We started seeking out those uh, different things in the city itself that uh, Maybeck and Green and Green were involved with. And that was, <clears throat> and then I had the guy who teaches architectural history as my uh, driver <laughs> taking me to these places. And it was a phenomenal education. And I just think of that trip as being the most important trip of my life because it, just came to every part of my being and my eye to as being right. And uh, I just hearken back to that a lot when I am having to do architecture. I imagine a lot of those houses are still uh, around now, too. It seems like um, they were good enough that people would give it some serious second thoughts if they were thinking about doing an insensitive remodel or a teardown or something like that. You know, it's like those places were good enough that they would stop and go, hmm, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't do anything. <laughs> well, it's interesting because uh, uh, Green and Green have uh, the Gamble House in Pasadena that has been preserved, mm -hmm. but the Blacker House was torn down. And uh, they've tried to collect everything they can from it to get it back again. But uh, people don't uh, really respect that kind of heritage for some reason. And, uh, you know, they paint them blue and put red doors on them. And they kind of lose the feeling of all of that. Sometimes they go through phases with it, too, don't they? Like uh, things that are um, don't seem to be valuable, like after they survive for a few more decades and people come back around and go, hmm, you know, maybe there's there was something uh, worthwhile here after all. And if it, there's very much of it left, we could uh, relaunch an effort, however late in the game it might be, to um, show them some love. Like I'm thinking about some of the modern houses in Palm Springs. They went through decades when they were just kind of neglected and uh, not doing so well. Well, the, there are a lot of tours now of that older architecture. And, of course, a lot of that was done by famed Hollywood people, uh, which is quite prominent in Palm Springs. But uh, the thing about Bernard Maybeck is his training, it just seems interesting that he would be somewhat involved with the American arts, arts and craft when he uh, was actually trained in Paris at uh, the Col de Bazaar. And that really fascinates me. And that's pretty neoclassical, uh, taking historical forms and putting all kinds of decoration. And I asked 
Ted about that when I saw these really what I felt were quite contemporary looks uh, for a guy that age to be doing that because to be doing that kind of architecture he took me over to San Francisco and showed me the Palace of Fine Arts uh, uh, it was a Panama exposition done in 1915 which when I saw it was a steel structure but nothing but paper mache and it was uh, supposed to be a temporary building. Have you seen that, uh, Clark? Nope. It's it's on a reflecting lagoon or something, and it's classical uh, pillars and domes, and and it was an exposition building, and it's pink. So if ever you see that, you might look it up on your um, computer because. Uh, when I saw that, I couldn't believe how gorgeous it was because here I am uh, kind of refuting all of that as be- having any val- uh, validity in my life. I guess San Francisco loved it so much, they recreated it in concrete in past years, which I'm glad they did because it's well worth preserving. It seems sort of like it has some validity whether you acknowledge it or not, right? It's uh, yeah. maybe it's just something that you'd know that you're supposed to dislike, but it still is is there. It's a, it's got some importance. <laughs> but w- when I was there, one thing I noticed is across the street from it, uh, I can't even remember the name of the street, but uh, was uh, they have these multi-story townhouses, and there was one that was just took me by storm. The most beautiful windows in it. I want, I don't know, even know if it's still there. I should look it up. But uh, I hope it is because I couldn't keep my eyes off of that. And here was this gorgeous thing behind me, too. There's probably plenty of distractions around there. Yes. Well, I like how you kind of described the trip where if you've got some time alone, you're not hanging around in the hotel room. I'm always when I go someplace, uh, it, it takes me forever to, to drive 200 miles hours, you know, because I'm always like stopping and looking at stuff. You have to choose your traveling companions pretty carefully. Like there's people who uh, insist <laughs> that you need to, you know, drive directly from point A to point B with the only stopping if it's absolutely necessary. But I've never subscribed to that point of view. Well, my folks loved road trips when I was a child. And I had two sisters and uh, sometimes there was a dog. And we did nothing but fight. <laughs> <laughs> my folks were the ones who were stopping every two two minutes to reprimand us. Yeah, nice. But they didn't get very far fast either. Yeah, I remember driving around with my mom and dad in the in the sixties and around in the Pacific Northwest and Western Canada and stuff, and looking at all these buildings all the time. And uh, it wasn't always. It, I think it was more fun for me than it was for my siblings. And but all of us didn't always seem see the point in what we were doing, but I guess it had an impact long term, right? We only had two lane roads there. And if you, uh, my dad was given to not really letting all the trucks pass us that he had just passed. And so if we had to go to the bathroom or something, that was too bad. <laughs> we had to wait. <laughs> pickle jar. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Well, that's a good place to leave it. I think we're out of time again. Can you believe it? Oh, I've talked that much, eh? Yeah, and, and me too, and and listened, and um, we'll pick this up again uh, in the next episode. It's great talking with you, Ralph. I enjoyed it very much. Well, thank you, Clark. I enjoy you too, and, uh, and uh, you can call me or contact me anytime. All right, sounds good.
Some of Ralph Alley's work is shown at his website, artechdivisions.com. Ralph is working on a book about his Alaska experiences. My website is frame-ak.com. That's it for this episode of Alley Audio Vision, episode 2, recorded March 4th, 2020. Thanks for listening. So long, dear friends.